This episode of ArcaSpeak is supported by Infratech. Bring indoor comfort to outdoor living with Infratech Comfort Heaters. This episode is also supported by Enscape, empowering your design workflow by turning your BIM model into an immersive 3D experience. So I connected with a a guy on Instagram, you know, we've been kind of chatting back and forth via Instagram and he was, you know, talking about like, he's been a fan of the show, been listening to it a lot. He recently moved to Alabama and he was looking into going to Auburn. And so, you know, he was asking, he goes, I know that you went to Auburn. So, you know, if you want to give me like any inv- advice that you want, I'd, I'd love to hear it. And so we, you know, we've been kind of chatting back and forth, you know, asking me about like, why do I love Auburn architectural program so much? And, mm-hmm. you know, I could be a poster boy for like singing a lot of the different praises of like opportunities that it offers and rural studio, urban design studio, study abroad, you know, all of these different things that a lot of other programs have as well. And it's just like, what does, what makes, you know, Auburn stand out amongst some of those. And so he actually like, the other day just kind of stumped me on on one of them and he's just like you know i've been looking at all these different programs and i noticed that auburn doesn't have the the ipal program so anyway he was asking me about the you know the ipal program and it's just like why is you know why doesn't auburn have one yet and it's the uh, integrated path to architectural licensure which is oh, the, okay the end carb thing the end carb thing which is the evolution of the programs to be able to have a path where you can do your AXP. <laughs> they change. Well, they changed that one. I'll give you a, a, a mulligan there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, how it used to ta- be IDP. <laughs> yeah, IDP. Now it's a- AXP. Because intern became a bad word. And, you know, it was inter- yeah, exactly. And so I was like, well, you know, I mean, and I start, started talking about, you know, kind of my own personal opinions about, you know, the, this path to licensure that, you know, is immediately after school. And, you know, there's, there's two trains of thoughts here. There's the initial thought of just like, well, you know, I'd really love for students to be able to have, to have all of these different choices, but I really do feel like professionals need a bit more experience. And I will be the first to admit that I wasn't quite sure how a lot of these universities are integrating the IPAL program and, you know, what makes their IPAL program different than like the traditional path. Because traditional path at Auburn, it's going to give you some, a lot of like hands-on situations where if you're out at the rural studio, you're not only going to be designing stuff for real clients, you're actually going to be building that stuff for real clients. And to me, that's valuable. I mean, that's, that's valuable beyond valuable in, in, in many cases, because it really lets you understand how, you know, how things go together. I mean, like if you're designing yeah. something and you can't even figure out how to build what you've drawn, then maybe you should draw it a little bit better or... Well, dig into it, right? Or <laughs> dig into it. Or or talk to somebody who has that experience and get them to weigh in on it early, right? Exactly. And and so, you know, I started to do a little bit more digging and, and I was looking into the University of Florida's IPAL program, which I believe they might have been one of the test programs. And I know that there's a lot of different universities now have, have picked up the IPAL program. USC and your neck of the woods, Texas A&M, where buddy of the show old uh, Andrew Hawkins uh, teaches at, you know, and, and so he was just 
asking me a little bit further about it. And so digging into it more, you know, one of the things that we've always talked about in the past is how there's this huge disconnect between, well, let's just maybe not huge disconnect, but there's a disconnect in my own personal opinion between academia and the profession. And, you know, we always complain about, well, you know, school's not really preparing you guys for the profession and the profession is expecting more out of students when they come out and things like that. And so I I really see the, you know, this growing advantage of this IPAL program because you're essentially, you're going through your courses of study and it's going to take a, t- a totally different kind of student to, to kind of go through some of these programs. Cause you know, you're, you're going to be required to not only go through your courses of study, not only go out and get experience and, right. you know, years of experience, the but then, portion of it. yeah, you, you have to fulfill the full AXP portion of licensure and then go through the, basically go through all of the tests and to be able to graduate with that. And I don't know, I didn't get too far into how long that extends your, your course of study. Does it take like your five-year program? Does it turn it into a six, seven-year program? I think the idea is that it doesn't, but yeah, I'm not sure either. I, you know, and again, I, there's a lot that I've got to continue to look into it, but the more and more I started to look at it, the more and more I started to kind of like let down my guard of like, oh, this is kind of a bad idea because you're just kind of like rushing people into licensure without having any real experience. And it really is a path of both experience and academic study. And so what's interesting is that, you know, like every, everything that I'm like hoping for a recent graduate or a new graduate to be when they come out of school is really kind of built into this IPAL program. This is not, not as bad of an idea as I actually once thought it was. I mean, I always like uh, look at my path, you know, my path was really long because I really felt like I needed to gain like all of this years of experience and I didn't feel like, you know, you were, could call yourself an architect without at least 10 years of experience. And this was like this whole like mentality from the army. It's like, you know, you can't become what you want to be without all of the experience. Without going through it all first. Yeah, without sure. going through through it all first. And dumb idea. I mean, you know, uh, trust me. I don't know. I'm, there's there's definitely, there, there are huge benefits to that side as well. You can't, you can't ignore that for sure. So I don't know that it was, it's not a dumb idea. Well, it, it wasn't, but, you know, honestly, I put these weird limitations on my own career path that in a way stifled some of my career path as I was going forward because, you know, they're like, you've got all of this experience, you've got all yeah. of this knowledge, but you don't have the license yet. Right. And right, you're like, right. and I'm like, ugh. But I feel like I don't have enough experience to get the, li- yeah, it's <laughs> a, chick- you know. it's, it is a, everybody gets caught up in this kind of imposter syndrome feeling or somebody else telling them they can't do something because they don't have X, Y, Z credential. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's just like, here I am like basically doing projects that my peers who are licensed have never done in their career and probably may never do in their career. And they're just like, well, big differences is I've got a license. You don't. So I'm an architect. You're not. And you're just like, how can you really say that I'm not an architect when I've like basically done all these different buildings? And, and I get it. I'm not, you know, I wasn't, (laughs) I mean, at the end of the day, I was just like, wow, did I really do myself a disservice? It didn't mean that I didn't have any less experience, right? But I just didn't, I had that one elusive kind of like credential that, that, you know, I remember one time we were all sitting at one of the AIA conventions with all of our friends and 
we were sitting and it was in Atlanta. We were sitting at the barbecue joint and there was this like weird, like whisper going around. It's just like, you know, you know, Cormac's not an architect, you know, like everybody at the table was, uh, was licensed except for me. Yet I had more experience than half, half, if not almost all of that table. Yeah. It's a weird thing, right? For sure. It's, it's like when a doctor graduates, I think they're, they're licensed to practice medicine and I get, I wouldn't, necessarily want a fresh out of school i hear you and and, yeah, and, and and weirdly that is some of like the comparisons that i was making is just like i wouldn't want somebody designing a this big commercial building fresh out of school no. and being able to sign and seal it if they don't understand like all of these ramifications of all the different coordination that it takes and all of these things that they really haven't gone through yeah and and, you know, the more that I think about it, it's like, they're really not going to be doing that. I mean, if they do anything that, you know, kind of like wing it on your own, I mean, you know, admit to me, because I'll admit to you that, like, I was designing houses right out of, right out of school. And, and I mean, they were good, well-designed, competent buildings that I worked, that I sought out structural engineers and people like that, knowing that there were some limitations that is architecture, right? I mean, there's, there's exactly, yeah. It's 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 a team effort, exactly. <laughs> that, and, and that many single people like to take all the credit for. <laughs> you know, and, it, and it's so funny that I I I look at like my path, and then I look at this this other path, this iPal path, mm-hmm. and you know, and I look at it, and it's just like they they will be working, they will be gaining experience, they will they will actually be working side by side with these long seasoned architects that are really going to kind of like guide them and say, you know, look, design wise, sure, you could probably handle like some of the design factors, but it's those, it's all of those other things. It's all of those other collaborations that you really need to kind of like reach out for. And, you know, if we're doing these IPAL graduates any justice, then we're preparing them in a much more rigid way to deal with the complexities of the the profession. Because when you get licensed, you essentially, you, you know, you assume a sense of liability, you know, not just responsibility, but liability that if they're trained properly, they're going to know that, oh crap, if I think my ego is greater than my abilities and I just go on and take all of this stuff out, I need to realize that I'm on the hook for all of this. And then they'll seek out all of those people and they'll like, you know, work with, with whoever they need to for a successful delivery of that project. Yeah, I, I you you said rigid. I think you meant rigorous because I, rigorous. Sorry, rigorous. Well, then I wonder: Does architecture school need to actually be more rigorous than it already is? Because man, they've already well, packed so much into there. How do you actually layer this in and make it where it doesn't literally kill people to go through school to do this thing that is has so much liability attached to it? I don't know. There's just so many kind of competing forces in this equation. Well, let's ask this question, though. Is the rigor of architectural school now versus, say, the rigor of architectural school that is geared towards this path to licensure? Well, it could act- absolutely be rethought and, and made better. I hope it is. Yeah. And, and I'll say that, again, just kind of starting to dive into my understanding of it. You know, not only did I read the kind of like the outline of the of the concept of the program on the NCARB website. Then, you know, I kind of like started watching like testimonial videos and started talking, reading a couple of other little articles. And so 
a lot of these conversations are, you know, need more study on mine just to kind of understand, but it, it really is that they are really kind of gearing these particular things. Think about like all of the technical schools that are teaching architecture that students who come out of those schools are geared more towards like, say, being able to like jump into documentation and things like that. And so I see that it's this interesting merging. I mean, most of the time we want graduates. I'm just going to speak from my my own personal experience. I've got, you know, a handful of recent graduates on my team and they've come from a couple of different, different universities from around the area. And some are more technically oriented. Some are more kind of like design and theory oriented. And, you know, we don't want to lose any of those kind of masteries of, or at least understanding of those skills. It's what we want to do is make sure that they have a little bit of everything and understanding how to use all of that at the right time in the appropriate place and and everything else, almost gearing the educational program to how AXP works and how the testing works. Like breaks it into these modules that give you a wide range of experience. Exactly. Which is the one thing that I feel like, I'm just going to speak for myself and you you can chime in if you'd, you'd like, but... I don't think that, you know, as, as much of the experience that I gained at Auburn and loved every bit of it, I think that looking at it critically towards like, say, AXP and the ARES, they didn't give me all of that. And, and if those are, if that's like the basic knowledge that we're guiding architects, that's the code minimum of architects. There you go. We're not preparing them for the code minimum. And and so I'd love to like be able to have that a little bit more expanded in a lot of these programs because they're all great programs. It's just, and I'm speaking generality here, but, you know, just from my experience with interactions of like, say, the GSD folks, they are so very theory oriented. They're so very like design and theory oriented. Right. And, and so I had another friend work with a handful of GSD grads where he was more technically oriented and he was doing a lot of like the, the technical grunt work where they were doing kind of like the theory design and all of that other stuff. And, you know, he kind of felt a little out of place because he felt like he was equal match in design, but he wasn't quite like viewed upon that way. And so that's you what know, he thought. Yeah. Well, that's what he thought, you know? <laughs> but but to be quite honest with you, I mean, knowing the guy, I mean, he was he was actually on par design wise with you know, I mean, he was like one of the best that you know graduated with me. Yeah, that's what I thought, you know, <laughs> and and I and I really felt like he was one of the best, and and so when he went and worked for this firm, which is a very nationally recognized or internationally recognized design you know, studio, he was pigeonholed into being the kind of like PM path the technical side of things, the technical project architect type path. And he was just like, oh man, I really want to design too. He was letting other people tell him what to do. Yeah. Life choices scale. Or, or, or he was also, you know, in that position where, you know, not only was, were people telling him, but he was also having to like, I think it was a symbiotic relationship. I mean, the last time that I talked with him, he was just talking about it's, it's now become, you know, he's, he's gained like what, he graduated in 97. So like, you know, he's got plenty of career 
25 plus years of, of career in him. And he, now he sees that symbiotic relationship between the technically oriented architects and the design oriented architects. And a lot of times he probably takes more pleasure out of like slapping them down and saying, yeah, that's great, but you can't do that. (laughs) Welcome to architecture. He's the initiation. So exactly. Let's take a moment and talk about the sponsor of this episode. Enscape is a leading real-time rendering and virtual reality tool for the global AEC market. It plugs directly into your modeling software, giving you an integrated design and visualization process. With Enscape, you can render in real-time and walk stakeholders through your rendered model with incredible ease. Your buildings can be experienced long before they are built. More than 200,000 unique monthly users from over 150 countries use Enscape to envision better designs. To learn more or to sign up for a free 14-day trial, visit enscape3d.com slash arcaspeak today. That's enscape3d.com slash arcaspeak. In the last few years, premium outdoor spaces have become a must-have architectural feature. And Infratech outdoor electric heating systems have become the brand of choice among leading architects. Infratech heaters provide energy-efficient, ambient warmth that allows homeowners to live outdoors during the cooler months. Clients love them because they can enjoy a hundred more nights a year outside. Architects love them because of their unparalleled versatility, from their heater capacities and their colors to mounting options that can either seamlessly disappear or accentuate a space with beautiful decorative coverings. They are also the only comfort heating company that offers smart integration and hands-free voice-activated control. For over 60 years, Infratech has made their products in the USA at competitive prices. They offer incredible design and live technical support at every stage of the job. Infratech is specified at the world's most prestigious properties. Learn why and sign up for a free consultation at infratech-usa.com forward slash podcast. I for one appreciate the design options you get with Infratech because as the cooler months approach the mid-Atlantic region, We're looking to extend those outdoor days, and Infratech heaters provide comfort without being large and in your face. It's interesting to think about how schools have never had to deal necessarily with this iPal program before and having to now kind of, if they're willing to take it on and offer that as a way to attract students, like to say, because that's what schools are, are in the business of doing, is attracting students to their program getting the best possible students they can so that they can then show the work and brag about their program to attract more students like that. That is the business of the universities these days. And so it's hard for them to let go of the way they've always done things because that is their tradition and it's their portfolio. Everybody knows what it's like to try to completely change a giant machine. It's practically impossible. Right. Right. And so now now that institutions are faced with the possibility of having to change a program to adopt adapt to this IPAL situation, it rewrites how you approach education. Because before, the schools would focus on one thing that they felt was their you know, value, which in many cases at schools is design, right? because that's the sexy thing that people want to go learn how to do, even if they're not going to end up doing that in the profession as their main role on a project. They still want to go to a design school because it's exciting and it's 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 a training like you've never had anywhere else. It's amazing, right? And and so I get that part of it. And now there's this other thing where it's like you can graduate and be licensed 
doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go out and start designing buildings for everybody. Everybody knows that this is still a service industry, right? I mean, <laughs> right. Clients right, have right. to find you and trust you and pay you to do the thing. And if, if they don't trust you to be able to, to deliver, then they're not going to hire you. So I, that's not really a, a force they have to reckon with. But before, like they, the, the schools relied on the AXP or IDP, depending on which version you are a part of, and the after-graduation experience that people gained they, they would say no that's the job of the firm to do that training because we don't do it in school we don't train them in business we don't train them in practice we don't know all the different offices standards so a lot of schools even stop teaching how to use certain programs apps because it didn't matter to the school which app they used to deliver their projects just deliver beautiful projects like you figure it out student it's on you now and then the, when you go work for a firm, honestly, this is the, I think it's, it's the better choice of the two is to say, let the firm train you in the technology because you actually don't want the bad habits that students bring to the table, firms. You don't. <laughs> true. You true. 100% don't. And they're so good at learning. They can pick anything up. You just have to teach them. So that might mean you have to have a training program in your firm to, to teach that w- the way that you want it to be done, which is extra effort on your part. And I mean, to me, this is everybody wants to fight about all this stuff, right? It's your job to do that. No, it's your job to do that. No, I wish the schools would do all the things. And it's like, well, schools can't do all the things. There's still a limited amount of time and a limited amount of bandwidth to to be able to pull that off. So, man, what what a this is a tough problem. And yet, the whole profession needs more architects. Right. 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 Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> and so, and yet, it's a very exclusive club. <laughs> so. We love telling people that they're not architects, and yet we need more of them. And and so it's this really weird, messed up, dysfunctional family that we've got. And it, like, I just published this episode on my on my other show. Like, we are at a tipping point, people. There, this world will move on without us. It does not care if we are a part of it or not. We have to care. It's on us to come up for air and say, hey. Is this a landscape worth living in the way it is right now, this profession? Because if it's not, like, let's redesign it. And and there aren't enough people stepping away from the deadlines that they have on a weekly basis. Like, that is seriously the life of an architect, right? It's a weekly deadline for something. I feel like, I feel like you're pointing fingers. Yeah. <laughs> is this personal? No. <laughs> Very much is. (laughs) But that's, it is, right? It's like that. And so how do we get out of that weekly deadline mindset to say, what is the professional mindset? What is the, how are we, how are we going to be in the future? How are we going to attract more architects? What does the education look like? What does the licensing look like? What does the professional setting look like? Who does what? And it's not to say everybody has to do it the same, because that's not, that's never going to happen. We, we do need to offer choice and difference so that people can pick their talents and put those in the right places because not everybody is needs to be the same thing for sure so it this is this is something though that I feel totally charged up it's like a call to action for our profession to say get your head out of your ass come up for air survey the landscape and and talk together not just in your firm and not just in your firm and not just in your school and not just in your school to say, how do we all pick our piece to move this forward together? Because if we don't, man, I'm serious. They, they, nobody cares if architects are going to be a part of the future or not. If they don't have to use architects, they won't. P- 
period. Everybody knows convenience wins everything. And so that's what technology has proven. Like if you want your alcohol delivered instead of you driving to the store to get it, you can have that. That's convenience. It's going to win as an example. <laughs> but it's that's where everything's going. So if if it's more convenient to not use an architect, heck yeah, they will. They'll do they'll choose that 100% of the time. Because that's what that's what people do. That's human behavior. You know, and when you we started talking about this just this this part of it and I was thinking, you know, I mean, yeah, let, let let's take that part out of the, the schools and let the, the profession kind of like train them. And then I started to kind of like daydream a little bit about, well, you know, what if we start, you know, developing just these, I mean, there are in theory, AIA national standards for like BIM and documentation and all of these other things, but you know, rarely does anybody ever follow them. And then as you start, as you kept talking, I was thinking about like, well, we don't really necessarily want, I mean, it's like, yes, we want everybody to do the same quality of work, but the whole point of like competition and like variety and everything else, you know, isn't Good. that everybody does it the same. It's that everybody does it just different enough where you want to get that variety. You want to get that, you know, change. I mean, hell, it's, <laughs> we don't want that like punch card, like kind of mentality is like, sure. You know, at first I was like, yeah, maybe we need these standards. And then, then I was like, and within a few seconds, I was like, maybe we don't. <laughs> no, you, but you want, a, you want a solid foundation that everybody can build their value proposition on top of independently. And that that is really what it needs to be. But there has to be an agreement. Of, and there is at some level, like you mentioned, as far as like standard of care and code of ethics and, th- and things like that, that, that do need to be shared values across the ecosystem of architecture and the building industry. And I guess... I even see this, this is a huge problem beyond just architecture. So when we talk about consultants, when we talk about building product manufacturers, when we talk about contractors and the the lack of trust that exists between these different silos for lots of reasons, lots of history there, there's lots of baggage there. So we have to get come up for air and not only survey our piece of the building industry, right? As as we have to do that in addition to our profession. And and I don't know how we do that unless people are willing to do that because it seems like there's a lot of, now there are a lot of people willing to do that and they're the ones who are involved at the AIA level and they are contributing to our professional organization. But everybody knows that professional organizations run with skeleton crews and limited budgets. It, it's a, This is a tough thing because not very many people of the total choose to serve in that way. So it's that's a tough job as well. Yeah, absolutely. So how do we dedicate people from our firms as this is a valuable thing worth doing when there's there's the you know the mentality in the firm like you've got to be billable you know ninety five percent of the time, but you can't do anything well with the other five percent of your time. That that's not dedication. <laughs> billable. 90% of the time. Hold 110% on. of the time? 150% of the time? What is... If you could work more and only bill me for the 40 per week, that'd be great. You know, there. Uh, here's here's a sick thing. And I'm sure everybody's done it. And if they have, shame on all shame. of us. If they haven't, good for you. 
But there was times when I would just say, well, you only pay me for 40 hours. So I'm just going to put 40 hours down. Like, and then I got to the point where I'm like, dude, I am killing myself on these projects. I'm going to legitimately do this because then I started to realize the real value of making sure that everybody understood my, my true hours. It wasn't, Oh, Hey, Cormix, you know, killing himself on this, this project. It was to display that Cormac is killing himself on this project means that Cormac needs help. And this is something that we need. You can't prove it unless you document it. Yep. Exactly. And, you know, is it legitimate that, you know, we're saying that for Cormac's time and for this person's time and this person's time, it's, it's 40 hours when the project's really telling us that it's not just Cormac's 40 hours, but it's another person's 40 hours and it's another person's 40. And so if we said that it was three people for this project, but those three people are working for basically the same amount of hours as six people, then it's really six people need to staff this project because that's the level of work that this particular project needs. Or you assess the project and it's just like, well, where's the inefficiencies? Or if it is efficiencies, then why are we not staffing this this project properly? And the whole education system and the whole professional licensure system is is not based on a time-based system. Right. It is not. How many hours does it take to do the design for this studio? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> it takes all of them. That's exactly. All, that's the answer. Uh, it takes all of the hours. It, and for some people, that's less. And for some people, that's more. And on the next project, that might be flipped. It might take one person less and it might take another person more. This whole time for money thing in architecture is totally broken. A hundred percent broken. Yeah. So I'll, I'll open a little bit of current wounds, peel off my bandaid a little bit here. But so we've had this conversation in the office with, you know, the project team and stuff, you know, it's specifically about there's, there's so many demands, international project, you know, it's like the first time I've kind of experienced something like this. So they're like client has a, a PMC and they are box checkers. Well, I mean, they were hired to be box checkers. They were hired to say that, you know, develop a standard of, for all of these different projects, we want you to develop a standard that everybody kind of like works towards so that we know we're getting a value for our money out of like all of these and stuff. And so to your point, this, this architecture for money kind of thing, you time know, these out time for money thing, you know, is, is architecture for money would be fine. <laughs> that's yeah. I'm sorry. I, I realized after I said, I'm like, that's not what I like said. that. That's the new slogan architecture for money. Thank you. Pay me. Exactly. But everybody's just like, well, you know, we've committed these, all of these drawings to, to Revit and, you know, because we have all of these other criteria that we have to do for all of these deliverables, I mean, we don't really have to have, you know, we don't have time to change them, but we're in schematic design and this is the time to change them. This is the time to make sure that we are doing the best job that we possibly can, because not only do we owe it to the client, but we owe it to ourselves to have the highest standard of project delivery that we possibly can to this, you know, time for money thing. It's just like, well, how much more time do you want from me for this? And it, it just, it's this interesting conversation that we're having. It's just like, for me, it's just like you do the design until the design is right. And then others are just like, yeah, but that could take 80 hours a week rather than 40 hours a week. But you're on salary. Right. Let's just go back to that part real quick because everybody seems to forget that part when they think about profitability. Yeah. 
Yes. If you could yeah. spend less hours, that'd be great. What they actually mean is if you could spend half of the hours that I've given you, that would be great because then it will look more profitable. They're right. not paying for your overtime. And, right. And right. so there's this, there is a genuine incentive to do less on projects because of this system. And yet, like, you're still getting paid the same either way. It's crazy. It's crazy making. Now, I get it. Like, yeah, if you could do it less than the 40 hours per week so that you could work on other projects too. Yeah. Okay. More efficient. I get that. But right. is that how the office is actually set up? Is that what the principals are actually okaying and, and signing up for when they sign on a new client and a project? I don't think they're thinking like that. It's like, no, we're going to put a small team. We're going to understaff this project. Understaffing is common business in this profession because people do give away their hours to work on projects. They're trained that way in school. And and then we'll deal with the carnage later. <laughs> That's it. We'll, we will throw other people, which will make it way less efficient because we have to train those people, the standards on this project later. Well, yep, we're willing to do that because it means we're going to be, quote unquote, more profitable now. It's like a shell game. It's like robbing Peter to pay Paul. Like this is, it's crazy making to me that we, that we choose to operate like this and that we can't actually, again, get our heads out of our asses to figure this out. And how, how valuable is architecture? Does it deserve to exist in the future? If so, if the answer is it's valuable and it does deserve to exist, it cannot continue to operate like this. It makes no sense. Right. God, people. <laughs> uh, yeah. So architecture for money, architecture for money, the name of my new firm. And with that, I was out to dinner last night with my wife, you know, just this, this time that I actually could like spend with her and not like <laughs> a rare, a rare occasion <laughs> on this rare occasion so when sad. I could actually like, you know, hang out with her and try not to think about like, yeah. the work that I have going on. Can you please like close the door to work for this occasion? It's so hard. So, you know, we were sitting in kind of like the, the pub area of this restaurant and they had the Meacham's car auction going on. And as we went in. Like on the TV in the restaurant? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which of course means that it's absolutely the right place for me to be. Yes, yeah, except <laughs> except your wife didn't think that. <laughs> no, no. Funny enough that she was the one facing the TV, not me. Okay. And she was just like, oh, oh, check that out. She's like, you you'll know. like this. Oh, she's so nice. I know. Jeez, you know. You're lucky. That's that's why I love her. That's awesome. But, so they had this brand new 2021 Ford Bronco rolling across the, the auction block. Why pay full price when you can pay more at auction? <laughs> Why pay full price when you can pay $90,000? It must have been like an early for, serial number. I, I It might have been 01. Who knows? I, I obviously couldn't catch that one. But $90,000 for a for a brand new Ford Bronco. So, so you and can't I, afford of, it as an architect is what you're saying. I get it. You know, it's just like, so like a fully decked out, Ford Bronco, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, but brand new Ford Bronco can cost upwards to 70 fully tricked out and everything else, which I still don't understand. The trucks that, these days are, are insanely 
crazy uh, expensive. Everybody wants yeah, a truck. But, Everyone wants an SUV. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I guess it's the either you're right. It's either like, you know, what serial number was that particular that particular vehicle? Was it like the or whose or whose signature was was in Sharpie on the dashboard or something? Ex- exactly. You know, um, <laughs> to be something. But it's just like, you know, you you look at it and you're just like, wait, like, why would somebody, you know, and then not only do you you're paying the the ninety thousand dollars you know, asking price for it, but you're also paying like the, the auction fees and things like that. That's just the new retail price. (laughs) And you got to pay all the fees on top of that. So here I'm, I of course just looked at, I just went on to (laughs) shop.ford.com Bronco. And so looking at like window shopping here on the, on the show. yeah. Yeah. So looking at the highest, like the the most tricked out version of of all of these, and I'm kind of clicking on the four door version because everything was four door, or, or that particular vehicle was a four door version. So you have a starting price of thirty eight thousand, or up to forty eight thousand for the fully loaded black diamond version. You know how many vacations I can go on? Like that's like eight hundred and something dollars a month if you finance that. That's I hear you. Crazy. I hear you. So how many? So what can I do for eight hundred dollars a month? How do people pay for these? I see people driving around in Teslas and stuff, and I'm just like, you spend like one percent of your day in that car. What? What can people afford this kind of thing? I I, I hear you. So all right, the wild tra- the wild track version of this particular Ford, and that's the that's the one with the that's like the fully tricked out one it's the most expensive four-door model is forty nine thousand four hundred and seventy five dollars right without floor mats so, yeah with, without floor mats all that <laughs> gotta get the floor mats so let's just say it's fifty thousand dollars that somebody was willing to pay forty thousand more, more dollars over sticker for it's this got to be the serial number it's got to be like it's, the collectible it's got to be part of it's because it. because it, in the future you know they're never going to drive this thing either so it's it's an investment yeah. like people are investing now and don't get me wrong i mean i'd love to have like one of those and, you know <laughs> drive across the trans-america trail bringing on a home you would actually use it <laughs> i would actually use it but but i mean i know it's it, yeah it's a it's a garage queen at that you for that price you know when when i watch some of these these auctions, you know, like either Barrett Jackson or Meacham's. And I'm like looking at all of the money that people are dropping for some of these vehicles. And you're just like, like I'm in the wrong oh my, business. Let, you know, yeah. Let's go back to that AXP and <laughs> iPal program and all that stuff so that you can barely survive when you graduate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I laugh well, I mean, and it's so freaking sad. Jesus. <laughs> well, but you know, you, you think about it, it's just like, are you really going to drive? a $2.3 million car on a daily basis. No, it's an investment. I mean, this is, this is a, I think it's what? a genuine investment opportunity for many people see it that way. They've so got back, a, so back to that AXP, yeah. you know, at IPAL. Yeah. I wonder if, uh, starting your career off with the licensure and, you know, actually giving yourself a leg up might get you somewhere uh, faster, might get you somewhere faster. I love you know, how you to, brought this back to a lesson. That's great. When, there you go. Thank you. Thanks to Enscape for their support of this episode. Visit Enscape3D.com slash ArcaSpeak today for a free 14-day trial. Thank you to Infratech Outdoor Comfort Heating for their support of this episode of ArcaSpeak. And remember, you can visit Infratech at infratech 
www.ghostbusters-usa.com slash podcast. To sign up for a free consultation, learn why Infratech is the choice for bringing indoor comfort to outdoor living. Thanks for listening. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. See all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and don't forget to share it with your friends. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at arcaspeakpodcast.com, where you can find our entire catalog of shows. Talk to you soon.